This sermon, What the Savior Sees, was preached on Sunday, September 25th by Jim Donahue at Sovereign Grace Church, Tucson. So Luke chapter 15, if you are taking notes, the title is What the Savior Sees. What the Savior Sees. So this is Luke 15. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him, to hear Jesus. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he's lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors, saying to them, Rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Let me read an article to you. It says this, law enforcement officers will tell you that they are ready to respond to any life-threatening situation in any crime or emergency, especially when a person's life is on the line. But what do you do when a toddler is stuck in an eight-inch wide well shaft and she is too deep to reach with your hands and too young to communicate with? That's the situation Midland Police encountered in October of 1987 when 18-month-old Jessica McClure fell down an abandoned water well and was lodged there for three days. Do you remember this story of baby Jessica? Okay, some of you remember this. Police Sergeant Andy Glasscock says, nobody could understand the magnitude of it. You couldn't even begin to comprehend. There was a backyard with a little metal pipe sticking out of it. Nobody could fathom that someone could fall down that. It wasn't until you could hear her crying that you realized someone was down there. And so what happened was that the few officers at the scene began this desperate attempt to try to free baby Jessica by digging with shovels anything in their sights. More and more firefighters were called to the scene. What had happened was Jessica had fallen down this pipe. It was only eight inches wide. She fell 22 feet down. At the 22-foot mark, the pipe opened up to about 15 inches, and she hung suspended over a 67-foot drop. The reason that she had stopped is there was debris where that pipe opened up, but the other reason was because her leg was above her head. So one of her legs was actually above her head, and she was wedged in there for three days. It says, making virtually no progress, the rescue team finally sought the nation's best mining engineer to direct the effort, a man named David Lilly, who was a veteran engineer with the U.S. Department of Labor, Mine, Safety. Lilly had years of experience in rescuing trapped miners. The problem is they had to fly him in from New Mexico. It says, meanwhile, everybody started to put their heads together as to what to do. There was a backhoe there. Somebody tried to dig a hole next to it, but it didn't work. The earth was too hard. They decided then they needed to drill a hole next to the well and then dig across to it. They thought it would be accomplished in an hour. Instead, it just went on. More rescue teams, spectators, and news media showed up. Sergeant Glasscock said the hardest part was that you could hear her crying. 
It was more like a scared whimper. It was like she wasn't sure what was going on. I have children, and there's no way once you heard her voice that you could leave her there until the end of it. As I listened to Jessica cry, I thought about my children, my wife. I raised four kids of my own, adopted one more. I'm a children-type person. I couldn't listen to that for too long without getting tears in my eyes. And then finally, David Lilly, the nation's best mining engineer, he arrived, but they met several obstacles. The biggest was that there was prehistoric rock, whatever that means, that would take almost two days to cut through. So they were making horrendously slow progress. They were drilling down about two inches per hour. And so finally, David Lilly said, what we need is this super high-pressure water blasting drill. The problem is that it was all the way across the state of Texas. So they called the government and said, can you put it on this C4 and bring this over? And the government hemmed and hauled and hemmed and hauled and hours went by. Finally, they called FedEx. FedEx said, we got it, put it on their biggest plane and brought it to Texas. And then it says, then they began drilling very successfully. And finally, after three days of digging down, they began to dig across by hand. It was tedious work. But then the rescuer workers hit the pipe, they drilled two holes, and they put bars in so she would not fall down. And it says that the rescue workers had their first glimpse of baby Jessica, and one of the rescue workers reached up and touched her toe. It says the first rescue attempt didn't go through. They couldn't get her out. They had trouble getting down into the open shaft. They had to come back up and reevaluate and regroup. Then they basically sent them back down to get her out one way or another, even if they had to break her leg. She wasn't able to stay there much longer. And it says the second time they sent the rescue workers back down to her, everything was really tense. And then up from the shaft came one of the rescue workers holding baby Jessica in his arms. I fell on my knees and started crying, Glasscock said. Everyone was crying and hugging and honking horns. There were tears of gladness and joy on every face. Baby Jessica had been saved. It was one of the greatest rescues of all time. And it is a great example of perseverance and sacrifice and compassion. And that is exactly what this parable is all about. We see, and Lord help us to see this, we see the extraordinary heart of God to rescue lost men and women who were not like baby Jessica, who was innocent and helpless, but sinners who were rebelling against God. And yet, God came after us. And he rescued us. And what a contrast this is to to the Pharisees, to the religious leaders of the day. Look at verse 1 again. It says, now the tax collectors and sinners, I love this, the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to hear him. Now, sinners here, when it mentions sinners, it's not saying like, okay, well, everybody sins and you sin and they sin and we all sin. Sinners were people who weren't even trying to follow the law. 
They're not even trying to follow God. They're not even pretending, okay? The tax collectors were traitors and were probably the most despised and hated people in Israel. These people that are drawing near to Jesus, they are the furthest from God. They are the people that are the farthest away, the worst sinners, and yet they're being drawn to the one who is closest to God, Jesus. So those who are least holy are coming near to the one who is most holy. I mean, usually if we know someone is holy, it makes us kind of feel uncomfortable, it drives us away, it it makes us aware of our sin. How is this not happening with the worst sinners in society? How are the worst sinners drawing near to Christ? Well, I'll tell you. It is the profound love that pours out of the Savior like light from the sun. Aren't you glad, listen, aren't you glad that sinners could draw near to him? Aren't you grateful for that? Aren't you grateful that he didn't say, no, stay away. You're too wicked. You're too sinful. You've despised. Get away from me. No, no, no. Sinners were Invited, they're drawing near to the Savior. Sinners drew near to him as love poured out of him. Now, something very different is pouring out of the scribes and the Pharisees. Look at verse 2, and we, we see that contrast. It says this, And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners, and eats with them. He receives sinners. He's actually eating with these people. So these, these scribes and Pharisees, they are grumbling and judging and despising and rejecting these sinners. This is absolutely preposterous to them. Jesus is not only showing compassion to these outcasts, he's receiving them and befriending them and welcoming them as if they could be a part of God's kingdom. Well, this is not the God that they serve. And so Jesus tells them a parable. He often spoke to the Pharisees in parables. And be careful, if you ever get a parable spoken to you, you're probably in trouble. But he speaks this parable to them to show them that this indeed is the heart of God. Look at verse 3. So he told them this parable. What man of you, it's like saying, what kind of a man, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? In other words, he's saying, what kind of a man would just let a lost sheep die? What kind of a shepherd would do this? Well, it's not so obvious to us, is it? I mean, probably nobody in here is a shepherd. It seems like we're still in good shape. 
right? I mean, we have, still have 99 left. Maybe the little guy will find his way back. Maybe we should just be happy as long as we have some sheep. It doesn't seem like that big of a deal to us. It would have been a huge deal to the shepherd. It's like saying, what kind of a man would turn away from something in great danger? Or in keeping with our illustration, what kind of a man would just let baby Jessica die? What kind of a man could just stand by and not do something? What, what kind of a man would not make every possible effort to rescue her? Who could hear her cries and just ignore them? Who would be guilty of such neglect? Well, I think I am. I know I am. I am guilty of this great omission when I don't pursue the lost. When I just let him go, when I, when I do little to reach out, when, when I stay focused on my own life, when I exert little effort and take minimal risk to rescue them. Now, let me say, not all of you are in this category. Some of you are doing an amazing job when it comes to reaching those who don't know the Lord. You have a heart that longs for everyone to come to know the Lord. So thank you for your example. But many of us struggle when it comes to evangelism, don't we? And even, even those who do well sometimes lose vision and motivation. Why is that? How can we worship with such joy on Sunday? So I just enjoyed so much just worshiping. Our hands are lifted and we're worshiping with such joy. And then when we leave, we close our mouths and we put our hands in our pocket and we we keep the good news to ourselves. How, how can we love the gospel as much as we do and yet not share it with others? Here's another way of asking the question. Why is evangelism so difficult for us, but it's so easy for Jesus? Why is it such a struggle for us, but it's so natural for Christ? Why is reaching the lost at the center of the Savior's life, but so often on the side for us? Three reasons. Why is evangelism easy for Jesus? Three reasons. Number one, the Savior sees the danger. The Savior sees the danger. The shepherd who represents Christ clearly sees the danger, which is why in verse 4, he goes after that lost sheep without a second thought. A lost sheep was a dead sheep. They were easy prey for lions or bears or wolves. And if a predator didn't get the lamb, it would quickly starve or dehydrate. A sheep has no way of surviving or rescuing itself. It is pitifully helpless. Its instincts are useless. And its defenses are pathetic. And it's the same for unbelievers. They are in great, great danger. And they have no way of rescuing themselves. They are doomed apart from Christ. Let me read you a part of a testimony 
This is from a woman in our church named Stacia. She says, I was raised in a very strict traditional family, Catholic family in Ohio. I was very involved in all types of sports from grade school through college. I was successful enough at sports to become a college All-American and was introduced to, I'm sorry, inducted into the Sports Hall of Fame in Ohio for basketball and track and field. And I've played with her. I know she's that good. As an adult, she says, I went to church every Sunday because I thought that's what we were supposed to do for God to love us and to get to heaven. However, I never felt God's love. On the outside, things looked great, but inside me was a void. In trying to fill the void, I made a lot of wrong decisions, and I lived a very self-destructive lifestyle. After many years of being in a mentally and physically abusive relationship, I was left by myself very alone and not wanting to continue on with life. How could God love me with all the mistakes I made? I'm not an all-American. I'm a loser. After several attempts to end my life, I, decided upon, I finally decided upon the day that I would really end it because I just couldn't take it anymore. Now, if you would have met Stacia, you would have seen success. She was an all-American, but she was in great danger. Apart from Christ, men and women are pitifully helpless and utterly lost, but we often don't see the danger when it comes to the lost. Now, with somebody like baby Jessica, the danger's crystal clear. It's real. It's, it's right in front of us. We can see it. We can hear it. We can touch it. But, but the danger that awaits the loss is far worse than what Jessica faced or anything that we could imagine. Luke 16, 22, it says the time came when the beggar died and the angels carried him to Abraham's side, the rich man also died and was buried in hell where he was in torment. He looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in this fire. Revelation 20 says, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is... This is not easy to talk about. It's uncomfortable. I wish we didn't have to talk about people going to hell. I wish I didn't have so many of my relatives that are now in hell. But if we love Jesus and we love lost people the way he did, we won't be afraid to look hell in the eyes. Eternal punishment is a necessary result of God's holy justice. Hell is real. It's real. And it's worse than anything we can imagine. But many of us have trouble seeing it. Or we choose not to see it. We can prefer to think 
happier thoughts, lighter thoughts. I know in my life, it's much easier to think about temporary things. It's easier to focus on this life. And the flesh prefers it this way and bends us inward and downward toward ourselves and the earth. So we wave to our neighbors, we interact politely with our waitress, we chat kindly with an unsaved relative, and rarely think about the danger that awaits them. They don't seem like a lost sheep or a helpless child stuck in a pipe, but they are. They're actually far worse. See, when we, when we see danger, it moves us. It, it compels us to action. Let me give you an example. When I used to, um, my wife and I used to go down the shore. That means the beach. I don't know. You probably don't speak Philadelphia. Down the shore means going down to the ocean where the waves and all that stuff. You don't have that stuff here, right? Anyway, so we would go down to the shore. My great-great-aunt had an old place uh, on the bay, there's like, um, it's on the water, so it's got pilings, and we would crab and fish off of there. As a kid, we were there. It was just a great place. But there are all these old little wooden houses with these docks um, all kind of jammed together. And my wife and I loved going down there, and we'd sit out on the dock, and we had snacks, and it was just this wonderful time. So this one time we were there, and we were sitting down, and I heard someone yell, Fire. And three docks down, there was a fire on this guy's dock. It was about six feet tall. And if this, listen, if this thing, these houses are just, the whole, they're gone. And so I sprang up as fast, I moved faster than I ever have moved. I think if I could have sustained this speed, I could have made the NFL because I've never but I've never been able to touch that speed again. So, um, so I moved like a bolt of lightning. I jumped over the one fence. I ran across that little dock. The lady came out, and I screamed. I said, turn the water on. I grabbed her hose, threw it over, jumped the next fence, and I was able to put the fire out. Now, no one had to say, hey, you might want to think about doing something about that. Like, nobody came up with, like, a brochure that was like, hey, let me show you this brochure. Here's a house. Here's a fire. Here's ashes. Like, oh, so this is going to do that and that. Listen, there was no thought process whatsoever. I just sprang. Why? Because I saw the danger. Why is evangelism often so difficult for us? What makes us miss something this important? I think one of the reasons is that we don't see the danger. But Jesus does. The Savior sees the danger. In this story, the shepherd sees the danger, and it compels him to act. He goes immediately after the lost sheep. He takes action and initiative. He pours his energy into constantly calling and seeking the lost sheep. He doesn't convene a meeting to discuss it. He doesn't call a prayer meeting to pray about it. He doesn't do a demographic study. He doesn't watch the latest YouTube video on how to find lost sheep. He just goes. He just goes. 
And this is the heart of God, to to go, to, to rescue men and women. The Father saw the danger that we were in. He saw that we were lost, and he took action. He willingly crushed his only son on our behalf. He exhausted his full wrath on Christ in our place. This is the heart of God, to rescue us, to go. And that's the heart that he calls us to have. Listen, God knows that we desire to reach the lost. We all desire this because the Spirit of God lives in us. And God is going to help us. He loves to help us to make us more like Christ. God is going to help us to see what he sees all for our good and for his glory. Number two, second point, the Savior sees the value. Now, in verse four, the shepherd not only goes after the lost sheep, but he leaves the 99 in order to do so. The 99 represent the saved, the Christian sheep, and he's leaving the 99 to go after the one. That lost sheep receives special attention over those that are safe and sound. And that's because each sheep was of incredible value to the shepherd. That's why he goes after the one. I mean, the shepherd would give his entire life to care for the sheep. People, even unbelieving people, have great value to Jesus. That's why he saved us. The Savior has immense compassion for the lost in their desperate plight. And this is amazing given what the lost are like. Lost men and women are enemies of God. We were enemies of God. I was an enemy. I was rebellious and defiant and disobedient, ungrateful and insubordinate and arrogant. And despite these things, God chose to value us. He chose to make us his own children. This says much more about God than it does about us. He doesn't value us because we deserve it. No, he values us because of who he is, because of his great love. He cares about eternal souls made in the image of God. But the Pharisees, they didn't care. They did not value people the way the Savior did. They didn't see, listen to this, they did not see, they failed to see that God wants to increase the community of his people. They didn't see that people were missing from the community and needed to be brought in, needed to be added to the community. The Pharisees were trying to keep these kind of people out of their community. They wanted the people of God to be more of a small, elite club. They were content with the size of their community. Are we content with the size of our community? Are are we like the Pharisees in this? Now, many of you are regularly inviting people into your lives and into the church, and, and thank you for that. Thank you for showing us God's heart. But, but I, I can be like the Pharisees in this. I can be content with the people who are in my church. 
And I like my relationships. And I don't always see it as a blessing when new people come into my circle. I don't always see the, the great need to increase the community of God's people. I can view unbelievers as interruptions, as messy and uncomfortable and inconvenient. And I can at times be self-righteous and just self-focused. And when I do that, I fail to value and love people the way Christ does. Do you realize, guys, people are missing from this community. There are people out there that are supposed to be in here. Do you see these empty seats? God wants to fill them with people who need Christ. He's not done with this community. He wants to build it, and he wants it to grow. See, when we see value in something, it moves us. It moves us to sacrifice and to persevere. One of the amazing things about the story of baby Jessica was the thousands of people that gave so much to rescue her. Millions of dollars, millions of people praying, but thousands giving their time, effort, energy, expertise to rescue her. Why would they do that? Why would they give so much? Well, it's because we value 18-month-old little girls. Why is evangelism often so difficult for us? We must not see the value in men and women that are lost. But Jesus does. The Savior sees the value. In this story, the shepherd values the sheep so much, he won't stop until it is found. Verse 4 says he goes after the lost sheep until he finds it. Verse 5 says when he finds it. How does he know that he will find it? I mean, it could take days. He might have to scramble up cliffs and comb through valleys, calling and searching, calling and searching. He might have to exert great amounts of energy. Is it really worth all of that? Absolutely. The sheep were of great value. And the reason that he knows he's going to find it is he's going to persevere until he does, even if it means he finds the sheep's tattered remains. He is determined, regardless of the danger, regardless of the sacrifice, regardless of the enemies, regardless of the risk, he will find that sheep. That sheep is in a desperate situation, and he must rescue it. He can't just let it go. That's the heart of the Savior. That is the kind of persevering and sacrificial love he has for the lost. Jesus saw value in people that were lost. That's why he took on flesh and blood. It's why he ate with tax collectors and sinners. And it's why he gave his life. That is the heart of Christ. And it's the heart that he calls us to have. And it's the heart that God is going to help us to have. You know, one of the things I am most grateful for is God's patience. Aren't you grateful that God is patient? Yes. Do you know that God is patient with you? And you know his patience is not like ours. My patience is often like a gritting my teeth, like, okay, fine, I'll be patient. No, patience, God overflows with patience 
toward us. This is not difficult for God. He delights to show us patience. Maybe you haven't done much in the way of reaching out to the lost. Let me just finish Stacia's story. I think this will encourage you. She says, so I got in my car with the intent on driving into a large tree beside the road near my house. As I increased my speed and approached the curve where the tree was, an incredibly huge deer with huge antlers stopped in the road, causing me to screech to a complete stop. This may seem odd to you that I was going to kill myself but wouldn't kill a deer, but God knew, even though I didn't love him and I hated myself, I loved animals. So God used the one thing that I really loved, an animal, to stop me. She says, I cried all the way home. Upon returning, listen to this, I wandered to the empty field next to my house and I just looked up to the sky and I cried out to God, please just send me someone so I can know how to follow you. Now this field was vacant for over 35 years but within a few weeks, a sold sign went up and a house started to be built. It turns out that the couple who built the house was part of Covenant Fellowship Church, a couple named Mark and Amy. After a few conversations with them about God, they kept mentioning the word grace. I really did not know what this word meant. Well, one day as I see them pulling out of the driveway, I ran up to them and asked, what is grace? Think about that. The word grace is one of the most precious words that we have. It is so jammed with all that is meaningful to us, the love, the undeserved love. and Like that word grace, we sing about grace. We name our girls' middle names grace. We we are just, grace is everything to us. But listen, there are people out there that are saying this. What, what is grace? What, what do you mean? What is that? There are people that don't know grace. They don't know what it is. And so Stacy continues. She said, they turned off their engine, got out of the car, and we went on their front porch, and they started to explain grace. And at that time, they spoke of a course at their church called the Bridge Course. So then she talks about coming to the bridge. About three quarters of the way through, we go away on a retreat. And she says this. She came to the retreat. She came late, just came in at the very end. She says, and there's a ministry slash prayer time here. And she says this. A woman came over to me and asked if she could pray for me. I only remember just falling hard to my knees and deep sobbing and not being able to get far enough under the ground as I truly became aware of my sin in light of God's holiness. I knew my only hope was mercy, and I pleaded with God to forgive me. By his grace, I was able to give my life to Christ and trust his forgiveness for my sin. At that moment, I saw in my heart Christ, and I saw his hands and the blood and the piercing, and I realized he did this for me, and I was truly loved and forgiven for all my sins. I saw the chains fall away from my heart, at that moment, my life was changed. I love that God dropped Mark and Amy right next door to Stacia. They didn't know that Stacia had almost committed suicide. They just reached out to her with the grace of the gospel. They, they valued her and loved her the way Christ does. 
do you realize that God has dropped us right where he wants us? He has dropped us into the exact neighborhoods where we live so that we can reach out to our neighbors. He's dropped us into the exact jobs where we work so that we can reach out to our coworkers. God wants to connect us with people who need the gospel. And God wants to reward even small steps that we take with great fruit. We simply need to value the people around us enough to reach out and share the hope of Christ. Last point, number three, the Savior sees the joy. The Savior sees the joy. Look at verse five. This passage has a ton to do with joy. It says this, and when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me, for I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents and over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So a lost sheep that is found is cause for great joy. It's cause for celebration. It's cause for a party. The owner of this sheep is experiencing some serious joy. He is thrilled, and he wants to share this joy with others. So imagine after days of searching, the shepherd finally spies the lost sheep alive. He races to it and hugs it. He checks it over, removes some thorns, and I love this, and he lifts it high up on his shoulders, and he comes home rejoicing. This is a picture of who God is and what he did when he rescued us. He rejoiced greatly. He was thrilled. But often we can think the opposite might be true. Let me give you an example. When we were, um, my brother and I was kids, I'm a twin brother, and we would, um, we disobeyed my mom a lot, and we were, we would like to like hide, play hide and seek and games and stuff. So we were in Kmart. Do you guys have Kmart? Is that a thing here? It's like it used to be like Target. It's like Target, the predecessor of Target. Anyway. It was this store, and they had these round racks of clothes, and they were great to hide under. And so my mom would told us, you know, don't go anywhere, stay here. You know, we just, we just went out, and, you know, we're like, I'm young, so I don't know how old it was, maybe like six or something. And we're hiding under these racks. I'm hiding, so Bob was trying to find me, and he couldn't find me. I had a great hiding spot. And I was in there for a long time. It might have been like 15 minutes or something. And finally, on the Kmart intercom, Somebody gets on and goes, there's a lost child in Kmart, a lost child in Kmart. And I'm under there going, it's a shame there's a lost boy in Kmart. I hope, they, <laughs> hope they're able to find that guy. And so after about five minutes more, I thought, okay, well, he can't find me. So I came out. And I started walking kind of toward the end. There's this kind of long center aisle. And I walked, and my mom was coming toward me very rapidly. And like the Kmart security person was with her. And she's walking very rapidly toward me. And I thought, oh, well, she's probably going to be really happy to see me. <laughs> I think she said something like this. Oh, thank God. Where were you? I told you to stay here with your parents. You were in your door. And then she literally picked, put my elbow in my ear, lifted me off the ground, and carried me out to the car and threw me into the car. She didn't seem happy to find me at all. She seemed angry. There was no joy in finding me. The opposite of joy is experience. And you know what? That's what we can think about God. We can think that God found us 
and was upset. You could, you could picture that, right, with this shepherd? He's got to search for days, and he finally finds that sheep. What I picture is not joy. I picture, you know how they, sometimes they say they break the sheep? You stupid sheep, I'm going to break, jam them on your shoulders. I told you how many times. You know, doesn't that seem more natural? No, that's not what God did. Listen, when he found you, I want you to hold this picture in your head. He joyfully lifted you on his shoulders. He came back rejoicing. He was thrilled to find you. That's the heart of God. And listen, the shepherd, as he's looking for the sheep, he anticipates the joy that he's going to experience. Why is evangelism often difficult for us? We, we must not see the joy in it. It just seems hard. It, it seems messy. It seems like it won't work. At least there aren't any guarantees. It, it seems scary and uncomfortable. And, and sometimes those things are true. But listen, there is an incredible joy on the other side. There is nothing in this world that will bring you more joy than seeing someone rescued from the wrath of God. Yes, it can be hard work. Yes, it can be scary. Yes, it takes time. Yes, it takes sacrifice. But there is a joy that awaits, an inexpressible joy. You know, maybe one of the reasons that we don't sacrifice to to reach men and women with the gospel is that we haven't tasted this joy very often. We don't know what it's like, but Jesus does. The Savior sees the joy. He rejoices and he takes great delight when sinners come to him. And he wants us to see this. He wants us to taste it as well. You know, one of the things I find amazing about this parable is that Jesus didn't just tell a story about how God has compassion. He didn't just tell a story about how, you know, God's kind of like the shepherd. He takes action, he pursues, he initiates, he's persevering, he's sacrificing to save the lost. Jesus didn't just talk about this. He did it. He carried it out. Just a few chapters from this parable, Jesus enters Jerusalem, and he was determined to rescue us from our doom and destruction. He was killed and crushed and absorbed the wrath of the Father because it was the only way he could save his sheep. The good shepherd laid down his life for the sheep. This was not theory for him. He didn't just talk about it. He did what no one has ever done and what no one could ever do. He endured the beating and mocking and drank every drop of the cup. He was willingly forsaken by the Father. He paid the greatest price imaginable to rescue us. And do you know why he did it? It was all for the joy set before him that he endured the cross, scorning its shame. He sacrificed for joy. And he's calling us to do the same. He wants us, he wants you to share in the joy of proclaiming the greatest news that's ever been told, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me close with this Spurgeon quote. If you are eager for real joy, such as you may think over and sleep upon, I am persuaded that no joy of growing wealthy, no joy of increasing knowledge, No joy of influence over your fellow creatures, no joy of any other sort can ever be compared with the rapture of saving a soul from death 
and helping to restore our lost brethren to our great Father's house. Amen.